BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now here he is, the Peabody award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Welcome back to the Great America Show. We'll be talking in this episode of the Great America Show about our great political divide. What has become a yawning chasm of deep partisanship, a divide that in modern times has never been wider or nastier, and it gets uglier, it seems, by the day. Seven out of 10 Americans say we're headed in the wrong direction, that we've lost respect for our society's institutions, that we don't respect or trust government or politicians. We sure don't respect our media who report on violence in our streets and homes and corruption everywhere we turn, city hall, Wall Street, schools, police departments. We still respect our military, but not as much as we used to. Our politics reflect all of this, the conflict, the distrust, the corruption. Why would good people even think of running for office? Well, we're about to find out. Our guest is one of the good guys running for office this year. And while young, he already has a great life story. Welcome to the Great America Show, Jake Beckett. He's running for Senate in the great state of Arkansas. And Jake, we're delighted to have you with us here on the Great America Show. And uh, we want to talk to you about, obviously, uh, all of the politics involved in your candidacy, uh, how your candidacy came to be. But we also think you have such an extraordinary uh, life story for a young man in particular uh, that I just think the audience would love to hear more about you and how this moment came to be. Uh, so let, let's start with the beginning. Uh, and I guess the beginning wasn't you playing football at the uh, University of Arkansas. Uh, tell us a little bit how you first you, you got to the University of Arkansas. Well, first of all, Lou, it's great to be on with you. Thank you for having me on your show and your program. Um, yeah, I, I do come from a, a football family. It was a a family affair for me at the University of Arkansas. My grandfather started the, uh, the, the Beckett legacy at the University of Arkansas football team in the mid-1950s. Uh, he right. was the first in his family to go to college. Uh, it, was a big, uh, it was a big leap for him to, to leave his family uh, in the St. Louis area of Missouri and go to college. But, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a risk taker and a striver and, you know, someone who really changed our family tree. And I'm forever grateful for, to him. Uh, for starting that that family legacy, and um, you know, then his uh, two two of his sons, uh, his two sons, my dad and my uncle Jay and Chris Beckett, both followed in his footsteps and played football at the University of Arkansas in the late seventies and, and 1980s under Coach Lou Holtz, all right, uh, a, a great American, um, absolutely, and, uh, and and a great football coach as well. And then I was very blessed to follow in their footsteps. Uh, I guess I like to joke I didn't have a choice really. Um, <laughs> you know, That's, that sounds right. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I'm a third generation Razorback, the fourth, uh, consecutive man in my family to, to play football at the university of Arkansas. And I just didn't want to be the first Beckett in, in 60 years to screw it up. Um, but I was, I was blessed to, to get up there to earn a scholarship. I was not very highly recruited. Uh, I was very lucky to earn a, a scholarship offer to Arkansas. And so I always had that chip on my shoulder. Uh, I was never going to allow myself to be outworked and out hustled. And I was very blessed to be a, a part of some great Razorback football teams um, and be a, a two-time team captain up there on the Hill and uh, just continue on that, that, that Razorback family legacy. Yeah, you, you did an outstanding job of doing just that, uh, carrying on that legacy. Uh, the, the role of football, obviously large in your family, uh, it, how did uh, how did your early years uh, were were you uh, did, were you raised in the city the the country uh, you know, what what was your uh, upbringing like? Well, I was raised uh, here in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, born and raised, and you know, 
Little Rock is right smack dab in the middle of Arkansas, but you're never too far from the duck woods, the great outdoors. Mm-hmm. You know, Arkansas is a tremendous state. Uh, farming is a huge part uh, of our state economy. And, you know, there are many Arkansans who have a great reverence for uh, the outdoors and for uh, conservation, obviously for the Second Amendment. Uh, it's something we take very seriously here in Arkansas. And, you know, I was just, I was very blessed to grow up in the natural state. You know, Arkansas is, uh, it, it's it's God's country. It's truly a special place. Uh, you know, we have a strong Southern culture, a strong family atmosphere. Uh, we're very proud of our sports teams. The Arkansas Razorbacks are kind of like the the professional team here in, uh, here in Arkansas. So everyone's a big Razorback fan. And, you know, I was just very blessed to, to represent the state that I love so much and it's done so much for me and my family uh, up there with the Razorbacks because I always did. It was, it was, I took a lot of pride in, in wearing that Razorback on my helmet and representing the entire state of Arkansas. And, you know, I think in a way, um, you know, that love for the state has never left me. And I want to represent the state of Arkansas on the national stage as well. Yeah, that uh, that, that that big old uh, hog on the side of the helmet is, I think, one of the, I, it's certainly iconic uh, as a logo in football in this country, a, a great tradition and great uh, great. Uh, coaches and players there throughout the years, and including yourself. Now you were you were drafted uh, out of college by the New England Patriots, right? I was. Yeah, I was a third round draft pick by the New England Patriots. Uh, again, it was just an amazing privilege to to be selected by Coach Belichick and be a small part of that amazing dynasty. I mean, the, the Patriots, the the legacy in that team it it speaks for itself. But you know, I, I had the the honor of learning from some of the all time great. Players and coaches, Tom Brady, Vince Wilfork, Gerard Mayo, Matthew Slater. And, and of course, uh, you know, Coach Belichick's leadership. I, I learned so much, not just about X's and O's in the game of football, but about leadership, about organizational management, about, you know, setting a standard and getting a, a very diverse and disparate group of young men to, to come together and march to the beat of the same drum and strive towards a common goal. It's something that's rare. In, in college sports and, and even more rare in professional sports to instill that type of a professional culture uh, when there's so many high paid uh, ego driven individuals uh, you know, in, in one organization. But Coach Belichick and, and Tom Brady, they deserve a lot of credit. And of course, Robert Kraft, the owner, for instilling that culture, you know, that the Patriot way, as we always called it. And it's really no secret it's no surprise, really, that they've had so much great success, and I was very honored to be a small part of that. Well, and how long did you play uh, in the NFL? I played four years from 2012 to 2015. Um, you know, I was on and off the active roster. I, I spent my last year on injured reserve. I got hurt my last season. Okay. But it was, you know, it was it was a blessing to be there. And you know, so all those lessons that I just described, you know, I, I carried those with me into my military career, and I've car- carried them with me into this campaign. Because, like I said, it's not just about X's and O's in the game of football. It's these are true lessons of leadership that I think the entire country would do well to learn. And uh, and by the way, Jake is uh, also he has a, a Super Bowl ring as well. Uh, you didn't mention that. You're too you're too modest, Jake. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was uh, like I said, I was a very small part of that of that franchise and that dynasty. But you know, again, I was I was able to learn from the very best, and you. You know, I, I always love to be around, you know, people who are the very best in their professions, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, it was, it was an absolute privilege to see someone like Tom Brady work at his craft um, and, and, of course, Coach Belichick and the rest. And, um, yeah, being a small part of that, that Super Bowl 49 championship team, that was the that was the Seattle Seahawks game, the, the famous Malcolm Butler interception. <laughs> and, you know, that, I think that's just a, a, a lesson in and of itself of the genius of Coach Belichick and the Patriot way. You know, we. We worked on that exact play multiple times throughout the week leading up to the Super Bowl. We knew that if the Seahawks, if they lined up in that shotgun formation on the goal line going in with two receivers split out wide, they were going to run this little pick play, this little screen play out to the wide receiver. And so since we had rehearsed it, since Coach Belichick and his staff had identified that play and that set as a likely uh, situation where they would run that particular play, You know, we were able, you know, Malcolm was able to do his job and make that interception, and, you know, the rest is history. You know, my first reaction to watching that, and I'm, I'm a, as you might guess, an avid football fan, that uh, whether college or the NFL, but when Butler went for the ball, 
he looked like he was the uh, the target. He slammed into that receiver and that took possession of that ball like he had owned it, and uh, he was going to take it home, which is exactly what he did. That was a an amazing play at the goal line. I just first the play call itself. Uh, it, it, that's just Pete Carroll. I'm, I'm sure he still has nightmares about that decision, but to find out you guys have been practicing that very play, looking for those very keys. Uh, it's just, a, as you say, I mean, it's a testament to the, to Belichick as a coach and, uh, and, and beyond. And, and, and your, you know, your modesty, by the way, in being a small part, you know, uh, you know, big things are, are made up of lots of small parts and, uh, for every team, for every country, uh, in everything that we do as, uh, as human beings, uh, we organize around a task and the more successful we are in organizing and being aware of our importance within that group, uh, is is the key to success no matter what uh, you've got some big players you've got some small players you've got fast and you got slow big and small but man in football when you see a team uh working it's just a thing of beauty it really is you know football is you know i, I think it's the greatest game because as you said you've got you've got 11 men on the field at the same time doing uh, you know, very different tasks, different jobs, every single play, and you're only as strong as your weakest link. And, you know, that's why, um, you know, I think that game, it's, it's physically demanding. It's, uh, it can be brutally tough in some ways, but, you know, it's also the best demonstration of leadership and especially at the highest levels. Um, you know, it was just a, an honor and a privilege to play it in college and professionally with the Patriots. Well, I want to turn to some politics. Uh, uh, move from uh, uh, first from football to to the military, because I think people may be surprised to learn that from your next step from the NFL was to join the uh, the military, the U.S. Army. Tell us about that decision. Well, I, I felt the call. I guess I felt it for in, in some way my entire life, but it it became more and more pronounced when I was in New England. We had a um, you know, a, a person who was a big part of the organization. He was a former Navy SEAL in New England. You know, Coach Belichick, he, he's got a, a special reverence for our military. His, uh, his dad, uh, Steve Belichick, um, actually coached at the Naval Academy for a number of years. And so Bill grew up around the academy and, um, you know, has a, has a very uh, high amount of respect for, for our military. And so we had this former Navy SEAL who was around us. And I found myself always really picking his brain about his time in the military. And that really decided it. I, I knew that, you know, my NFL career wasn't going to last forever. I knew that, you know, whether I played for two or three or four more years, I was still going to be a young, uh, healthy individual with the opportunity to serve. And, and that's what I did. I decided to to enlist in the Army uh, through the officer candidate school program. I went to basic training, uh, commissioned as an infantry lieutenant, volunteered and graduated from the U.S. Army Ranger School, and then deployed to Iraq with the 101st Airborne Division. And it was truly the honor of my life to wear the uniform. Um, you know, that was I've always had a great amount of respect for the, the soldiers and, and statesmen in our country who decided to serve, who decided to fight and stand up for their beliefs. And, and I, I believe that I was uh, simply following in, in their footsteps, the great men and women who have come before us, who have worn the uniform. Um, and I wanted that to be a part of my story and I wanted to serve. Yeah, Ranger School, for those who don't know, is, uh, it is it's one of the most demanding uh, and exacting of all uh, military uh, training in the U.S. military. It is just, a, it's an elite group, uh, airborne, uh, much the same. And you were not taking the easy way at any turn uh, in joining the Army, were you? No, I, I wanted to serve in the infantry. You know, I wanted to be with the grunts. I wanted to be an infantry platoon leader. And, you know, I wanted to wear that Ranger tab and graduate from, from Army Ranger School. And as you said, it's it's very tough, but you know, you that that's where great leaders are forged. And you know, I wanted to stand before my inf infantry platoon, uh, so they would know they were being led by someone you know who had been qualified by the toughest leadership school the army has to offer. So it was a it was a great uh, task to do that. You know, it was a little bit different from uh, you know football two a days, but I think I had a great preparation. Um, you know, a great preparation for the military life was was football. You know, there I think there are some striking similarities there. You know, it's you have a you know a people coming together from different backgrounds, 
uh, you know, different creeds, whatever it may be. But, you know, you, you make those personal sacrifices to be a part of a team, you know, part of an elite unit that's striving towards a common goal to accomplish a mission. Um, you know, and, and just that that type of collective action, I think, is, you know, what's the best about our military? What's the best about sports? I think that's why you know, in the American culture, we have such a such a reverence and a respect for you know great athletes and, and great warriors. You know, it's I think it speaks to speaks volumes about, um, you know, the, the greatness of American culture. And, you know, I, I was I was you know, it was tough. I mean, I think I lost about 45 pounds uh, during those 62 days of Ranger School, but it was worth it in the end. And, uh, and and from uh, from uh, airborne on your 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 first posting, where was that? So at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, with the 101st Airborne Division, I wasn't I wasn't there at Fort Campbell for long. My my uh, brigade was deploying to Iraq uh, right about the time that I arrived there. Um, I followed them a couple of months later, but uh, I spent um, spent some time in Iraq in 2019. Um, you know, and it was a uh, you know, it was a, an interesting deployment, to say the least. We were we were stationed, uh, we were posted in northern Iraq and in, in Kurdistan and Mosul. Uh, we were co-located with uh, some, you know, some Marine Raiders and some, uh, it was really a, a three-star core-level command of the Iraqi army. Um, really, our main job was to uh, coordinate airstrikes, uh, taking out ISIS fighters when they presented themselves, but also to engage with, with local political uh, and military leaders in northern Iraq. But um, you know, it was good to have the opportunity to deploy um, and, and, you know, go over there with such a storied unit as 101st Airborne Division. Well, 101st Airborne, as you say, storied, a legendary 101st uh, it, uh, Airborne. Uh, how long were you in Iraq? And, uh, and give us just a, if you will, just a, a quick brief on, uh, on your military uh, career. Yeah, so I was I was in Iraq for about five and a half six months uh, in 2019, and as you said, I mean it was an absolute privilege to to deploy and wear that Screaming Eagle patch of the 101st Airborne Division. We all know the story. I'm sure that so many of your of your listeners and fans have seen Band of Brothers, um, you know, or read the you know read the book by Stephen Ambrose of the right. same name. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a proud division, and you know to be. To be an infantryman, you know, to be a platoon leader in the 101st Airborne was was, was an absolute privilege and an honor. Um, and I was I was proud to wear that patch downrange in Iraq. And, and as I said, you know, we were we were taking out ISIS fighters through airstrikes when they presented themselves. Um, you know, but really our our mission in Iraq was also uh, it was also political and diplomatic in a way. Um, you know, we were gathering intelligence. We were trying to. Um, you know, transfer command of that portion of the country over to the Iraqis themselves with with mixed results. Um, but, you know, that was really our our mission in that part of Iraq at that time. And I and your and your decision to to, to leave the army. Yeah, so I, I returned to, you know, stateside to Fort Campbell in in late 2019. And that was really around the, the time that everything started to unravel in our country with with the pandemic and of course the the violence in our streets, the looting, the suppression of our economy, you know, really everything that's happening, uh, you know, some might say that the great reset that the left is trying to instill in this country started happening in 2020. And, you know, I realized that, you know, I I I served in the army to make an impact, to stand up and fight for my beliefs. But I really, I realized at that time last year that the the fight really was no longer on a distant battlefield in Iraq or Afghanistan. The fight was right here. It was domestic. It's political. And that fight is, is happening. And I, I think what, what mainly motiv- motivated me to get into politics and get into this race is that too many Republicans don't understand the nature of the fight that is at hand. This is, in my opinion, an existential, a fundamental fight over what type of a country, what kind of a country we're going to be. You know, the, the, the Democrats and the radical left have gone, they've, they've shifted the needle, the Overton window so far to the left on so many issues that, you know, really there's just, there's not much middle ground. But unfortunately, there's too many establishment invisible rhinos, Republicans, who are still trying to compromise with these Democrats, with these radicals. And it's that type of mindset, I believe, that has led us into this current predicament. And, you know, we've got to have real conservative warriors, wartime conservatives who understand the nature of the fight that we're in, first of all, 
and, and second of all, know how to fix it. And that's why I'm in this race. Wonderful reasons. And uh, let me say, I'm amongst those uh, who are absolutely delighted that you've made the choice to, to go, uh, go into politics and to, to seek election. Uh, and I wish you all the very best of luck. I, I want to I take up some of the philosophy that's going to guide you through this uh, uh, campaign and what you're what you're expecting uh at this point have you received the support you thought uh and have you also received uh any incoming i'll put it that way uh, uh for your choice well yes i mean we've received an amazing amount of support here in arkansas and around the country to be quite honest um, you know since we launched the campaign in mid-july um, we've outraised every other primary challenger uh, campaign in the entire country. We're number one. We've had an amazing amount of support from fundraising, from from earned media. There's been a great amount of media attention, which has been fantastic because I think people are excited. They understand that we need a new generation of leaders if we're going to turn this ship around. If we're going to if we're going to turn around. If we're going to turn this country around and and, and save America. Um, and so I, I think it gives people hope uh, to see a you know young conservative America First veteran who believes what they believe. Um, and who's able to to move the needle and rally others to our cause. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen so much enthusiasm. But, you know, as always, when you're attacking the political establishment, you, you are going to take some income, but incoming. But I take pride in that, Lou. You know, I've always said, if you're not taking flack, you're not over the target. And, you know, I welcome that. And I, I think it's it's been encouraging to see more and more you know, young conservatives and, and, and young leaders rising up who I believe know how to deal with with media attacks and attacks from the political establishment. Um, you know, growing up in the age of social media and you know online message boards, you know, it, it was a blessing in my sports career. You know, I learned how to deal with criticism. You know, the keyboard warriors from a very young age. And you know, once you kind of get over the fact that hey, there's going to be people out there in the in the Twitter sphere or online or in the newspapers who attack you. Once you kind of make your peace with that and, and understand that as long as you're grounded foundationally and ideologically and, and you're not going to let anything shake you, then, you know, great things are possible. And I've always had that mindset. I'm going to continue that, uh, you know, in this campaign and in my political career. And I'm not looking back. Good for you. And uh, I, I, I always believe that if you know who you are, you can take care of everything else. Uh, and that is the most important thing. And you've been tested. You have uh, challenged yourself in so many ways uh, as you also uh, sought to, to serve. And, you know, that's, uh, that's wonderful judgment. That is wonderful instinct. And it's a, a wonderful nature and character that uh, we need more of, as I said, in the U.S. Senate, uh, in the, uh, the House of Representatives, indeed, uh, throughout the country. Uh, so, let, let's let's talk, if we may, about uh, what your uh, what your next steps are. What you what do you think is most important for you to to win your race for the U.S. Senate from the great state of Arkansas? Well, the the next U.S. Senator from Arkansas is going to be the hardest working candidate, the candidate who is able to connect with the people of Arkansas. Because look, conservatives and, and patriots in the state of Arkansas. You know, for, for too often, especially, you know, with this seat with the incumbent, their interests have not been represented. And I think we're seeing that nationwide. We see a lot of, you know, patriotic Americans, real Americans, conservative Americans, even, you know, moderate, more independent minded Americans. Their interests are not being represented in Washington, D.C. We have too many politicians who have an R next to their name who don't really believe what their constituents believe. And I, I think that fundamental truth, Donald Trump helped expose that reality. Um, and I think more and more people are becoming aware of that. The media, you know, a, a, as you know, Lou, they, they had this Trojan horse strategy for decades where they would they would subtly, you know, move the needle further and further left. But really, ever since President Trump came onto the scene, they've they've just started storming the gates and, and frontal assaults. And yep. it's, it's been hard for anyone to, uh, you know, to ignore the fact that, uh, or ignore the, the truth about the mainstream media, the corporate media in this country, to ignore the truth about the radical left, but also, and most importantly, to ignore the truth about these invisible establishment Republicans who don't actually believe what their constituents believe 
They memorize talking points. They regurgitate them. They have these consultants around them who tell them what to say. And they're not really interested in fighting back because, I mean, that's really the essence of leadership in my mind. You've got to stand up and lead from the front. You've got to rally others to our cause. You've got to say and do the things that normal people can't do, right? You've got to, it's got to be a sacrifice. You know, our, the, our founding generation, they understood that. To them, leadership, service in, in, in politics, you know, service in the military, it was a real sacrifice for them. They were, they were pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. That was, you know, one of the, one of the closing sentences of the Declaration of Independence. We've got to get back to that mindset, and it's inspiring to me because I see other candidates nationwide who believe the same thing. You know, everything you say uh, gladdens my heart because one of the great sins, I think, are those rhinos who uh, have an R after their name serving in Congress or the Senate who are actually closer to, uh, to the Democratic Party, to perhaps the radical Dems or even the neo-Marxists than they are to the tenets of uh, conservatism and, uh, and the Republican Party. And the shame is that many of those rhinos are actually leading the party, uh, whether they be at the Republican uh, National Committee or be Senate Majority Leader or be uh, Senate, uh, excuse me, House uh, Minority Leader. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's stunning to me that uh, for the most part, Washington right now is peopled by a lot of uh, very uh, old uh, folks about my age making decisions about uh, the future uh, that they probably are, are not going to know much uh, and who do not have children of their own when we, they talk about education, who don't uh, have families at, at this point in their lives. It, there is a, a need for a generational change in politics. There is, that has always been the case. And what we are seeing now is a nation with some of the oldest office holders in our, our history in our national government. When you talk about a, a new generation, uh, it, I'll tell you, Jake, it, it excites uh, my heart uh, to think that uh, the Republican Party uh, will have that opportunity uh, in 2022. I certainly agree because I think we all we all saw the tea leaves. We all see the way the winds are shifting after the results in Virginia, New Jersey, and and all over the country um, last month with those uh, with those off year elections. I, I think we all understand that 2022 is going to be a wave election. It's going to be a change election. But the the crucial point that I would that I'm, the case that I'm making to Arkansas and the case that's being made around the country is that if we retake slim majorities with the same old same old rhinos, um, nothing is going to change. We have to send wartime conservatives. And we have the opportunity to send a real conservative warrior to the House of Representatives in the U.S. Senate and at state level elections. We have to take that opportunity or else nothing is going to change. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I, I want to get just quickly here, and I do appreciate your time. Uh, I want to get your sense, first of all, of the radical Biden agenda and what should be the Republican response to it? Well, we have to use the leverage that we have. It was so disappointing to see us capitulate again on the debt limit fight. You know, we, we have to squeeze these Democrats when we have the opportunity. We have to force them to, to come to terms and get rid of some of these woke, radical, insane policies like these mandates. And one thing, Lou, we, we spoke about the military, something that's near and dear to my heart. We saw the news yesterday. The first members of our military, it was 27 members of the U.S. Air Force, were discharged for refusing to take the vaccine. Yep. And, you know, this is, to, to me, this is, it's a watershed moment in, in the history of our military. I really believe that you can't overstate the importance of this because, not only is it a soft purge of some of our best and most promising and most experienced warfighters, but this also has a chilling effect, a chilling effect on military recruiting, because there's a lot of you know young and bold, patriotic American, uh, you know, young adults, young men and women who would be great. They would be tremendous additions to our military, but now they're going to be you know they're, they're going to be disallowed from joining because. They don't want or don't need the vaccine. They have natural immunity. They're young and healthy. You know, this virus statistically poses no danger to them. And so I, I think the consequences of this policy, if it's not reversed, 
is going to be incredibly damaging uh, for our military. It's going to make America weaker. I think America got weaker yesterday when we had this soft purge of Air Force personnel, and it's just going to reverberate throughout the different branches of our military, and it is incredibly dangerous. It is dangerous, and it is, and, and frankly, it is. It speaks to the quality of general leadership, and, uh, and general staff leadership uh, in, in the military. We have, for too long, in my opinion, Jake, uh, been listening to this long war doctrine put forward by General David Petraeus at one point, and we have a whole generation of senior military officers, and I'm talking about generals and admirals uh, at the Pentagon. Uh, who have made no sense out of the conflict that they have been uh, uh, engaged in for in the case of Afghanistan for 20 years uh, in Iraq. You can, it's an arbitrary number uh, because that conflict has lasted so long. It, it, we've got to have new thinking, we've got to have new spirit, and we've got to have new leadership. And it, it worries me uh, that we're not getting that kind of uh, urgency within our military academies, and I speak primarily of West Point, uh, where young warriors are not being taught uh, the cost of failure and how to avoid it. Uh, not studying failure, they're studying battles, but not the ones that we lost. And I, I think that's a terrible mistake, just among some of the issues. And so many, uh, I, I'll, I'll call it uh, you know, diversity meetings, uh, sensitivity sessions, instead of how to kill the enemy and to save the republic you're you're exactly right i mean the the, the mission of the u.s military is simple it's inviolable as general douglas macarthur said it's to fight and win our nation's wars there is no other mission for our military than that but unfortunately as you said you know mostly through the the expansion i mean here here's a stat that i think a lot of people might, might not be aware of you know on a per capita basis the, the united states military has 300% more flag officers today than we did at the height of World War II. So we're, we're talking about essentially what is you know welfare for three and four star generals. We have all these overlapping commands when no one is in when when everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. That's the situation. But you're exactly right. I mean, can you? I, I posted this question to to Americans everywhere. You know, can you imagine a General Douglas MacArthur or a General George S. Patton making it to high command in today's military? I mean, or, or an Admiral Bull Halsey? I mean, that's just, it's laughable to think about because, you know, the, the existing command structure and incentive structure, um, you know, prevents people like that from rising to the flag officer level. I mean, a lot of the most talented and promising young officers and NCOs, they get, at, they get out after their initial commitment because, you know, they just they understand that, you know, hey, I'm not going to be able to play this bureaucratic game for 25 and 30 years and and just live this risk free uh, political lifestyle to make it to three and four stars. And so we, we have to change. We have to attack the incentive structure and we have to get rid of these politicians in uniform. And you're exactly right. We have to reform these military academies. We have to get real, uh, you know, real war fighters instructing, you know, our future officers. Uh, learning the correct lessons, learning the correct, you know, uh, uh, anecdotes throughout history um, and, 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 you know, learning, you know, not these diversity, equity and inclusion uh, modules, but, you know, actually how to fight and win our nation's wars and do it the right way. So, you know, we, we have to have politicians in Washington, political leaders who understand this. You know, we have to have people on the armed services committees who understand this, understand the danger posed by the current status quo, and who have the courage to actually stand up and say, I'm going to reform this. And, uh, and we're learning uh, something about the uh, greatness of America uh, when we accept the fact that we have a duty to be, uh, to be all that we can be in serving this nation, uh, a servant of uh, the values uh, of this great nation. Instead, uh, we have too many people who uh, clearly, clearly think that there is some sort of higher force that they should uh, be attending to other than uh, God and country uh, and family. Uh, they are badly mistaken. Uh, Jake, I just wanna say it's been great, great to uh, listen to you and to hear your story and to hear your, your dreams and your, and your purpose. Uh, I support you uh, in, uh, in achieving uh, all of your goals. 
And I think that the people of Arkansas will be doing exactly the same thing. And you've certainly established how you got to be a, a, an academic All-American. You're a smart fellow, Jake. Uh, and uh, it's nice to see it show when a man talks about uh, serving the United States uh, in the United States Senate. Uh, I wish you well. I enjoy talking with you. Hope you'll come back soon. And uh, as always, thank you for your service. Uh, and thank you for what uh, you will be doing for this country in the years ahead. Well, thank you, Lou. It was an honor to be on your show. Thank you for everything you're doing for this country. And I look forward to being with you again soon. Thank you, Jake. Appreciate it. Jake Beckett, running for the U.S. Senate from the great state of Arkansas. We will continue in just one moment. Stay with us. Our focus today is the unraveling of the Biden foreign policy. Within less than a year, has demonstrated what former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates said about Joe Biden long ago, which is that Biden hasn't been right on a single foreign policy issue in 40 years. President Biden lifted some of the sanctions against Iran. He said trying to begin diplomatic talks on the Iranian nuclear deal. But now he's telling his national security team to prepare for a tougher stance on Iran because Iran has done nothing to reward his lifting of sanctions and uh, moving ever closer to having a nuclear weapon. How close are they? Well, Israel's military has been ordered to prepare for action against Iran should the Biden approach fail and the Iranians threaten the region. And then President Biden is also contending, of course, with communist China, Vladimir Putin, and his massing of troops on the Ukraine border. Joining us now is Fred Pleitz, former chief of staff of the National Security Council, deputy assistant to President Trump. Fred served for 25 years with the CIA, the DIA, State Department, and House Intelligence Committee staff. Fred, great to have you with us here on The Great America Show. Great to be here, Lou. Let's start with Iran. Israel preparing for a military option against Iran. Do you believe the United States to be doing exactly the same thing? Well, we all know that Biden's approach to Iran was exactly backwards. He came in trying to revive Obama's terrible nuclear deal. And he was ready to make any appeasement necessary to get the Iranians to, uh, to go along. And the Iranians are just so crazy, they wouldn't agree. They, they won't even agree to meet with our diplomats. Mm -hmm. And before the recent round of talks in Vienna began, uh, Iran, an Iranian official reminded the world that it still wants to wipe Israel off the map. And it, it turned out that not only was the IAEA not, uh, the Iran not cooperating with the IAEA, Iran was physically harassing female Iranian inspectors. So the situation is so bad, and with the surgeon's nuclear program so bad, we're now we're hearing reports that Israel's thinking of attacking. And I'm really hoping, Lou, that Biden, uh, Biden will finally walk away from these talks and take an approach of tough sanctions. Well, it, it sounds like he's preparing to do something. But with uh, Biden, that's always the problem. The ambiguity and the uh, potentiality of everything he talks about you can never put a time frame on it, nor a shape to it, or anything you know, that is approaching specificity. Uh, and he sort of lets things drift uh, uh, forward. Uh, I just don't trust uh, a responsible uh, action by this president because of what you have said. I mean, he basically has been carrying the Obama water here, trying to reconstitute part of his uh, uh, of Obama's haggard a legacy uh, in foreign policy. You know, that's right. And as recently as last month, Biden officials were talking to the Israelis about a partial nuclear deal with Iran in which we would give it some sanctions relief and Iran would freeze part of its program. The Israelis were appalled. They said, this is appeasement. This is giving in to nuclear blackmail. It's, but, mad, it's madness is what it is. It is. But, you know, Iran's behaved so badly, there's new reports, it may start enriching uranium to weapons grade. That's 90% uranium-235. Right. I, I'm thinking that they're, they're going to eventually push Biden so far that even he can't agree to appease Iran. I, I, I'm just praying, uh, well, Lou, that we'll get to that point. Well, this is what I find hard to 
comprehend, frankly, is why our, uh, our foreign policy, national security uh, stalwarts uh, with so much experience with Iran. This isn't uh, 1979. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the 21st century. We're two decades into it. We should know what Iran is and how to deal with them. And yet it appears we've learned nothing. This shouldn't be a Democrat or Republican issue. It should be a U.S. national security position that is uh, hard and, and absolutely directed toward the national interest. But I swear to you, Tony Blinken, uh, who is he and what is he thinking? What is this president thinking? Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, aren't even B-team level experts. And they're supporting a president who is clearly senile. Uh, they're obsessed with getting back into the nuclear deal because they're angry that President Trump rightly got out of it. Uh, and, and, and they have this idea that now that Biden's president, Trump is not, Iran will cooperate. But see, the problem is, Lou, Iran hates us no matter who's in the White House. They exactly. hate our, our system of government. They are a radical Islamist state. They hate modern society. They don't care that Biden's a president. That doesn't make us like the United States or make them want to cooperate with the United States. And the Iranians uh, persist in, as you say, refining the uranium. Uh, we know that now they have a tremendous stockpile that has advanced to 60% and above in, a, in a enrichment, putting them within striking distance of the 90% threshold, uh, as you point out, for the uh, weapons grade uh, material. It, it, this is just not acceptable. It can't be tolerated by not only the United States and Israel, but all of Western Europe. They would have to be mad to put up with this. I know Europe's getting to that point. When they heard about the 60% enrichment, possibly weapons-grade enrichment, and now there's new reports that Iran may, may conduct a space launch, and these space launches mm -hmm. were really tests of ICBMs. Right. I think the Europeans are close to being over, over, over the brink and that they will finally pull out. And I, I, I'm hoping Biden will get there too. It would be nice, would it not, for the Europeans uh, to join Western civilization again, uh, and actually uh, not be inert uh, and passive and oblivious to the threats that surround them. I believe that Vladimir Putin is also helping in that regard, Fred, with the 175 to 200,000 troops now massed on uh, the, uh, the eastern border of Ukraine uh, with their tanks uh, and rifles pointed directly at uh, the Ukraine. What do you make of it, and is Biden doing enough? I'm not sure Putin plans to invade or not. I don't know whether this uh, troop buildup is to get leverage to divide NATO, but it is dividing NATO. I don't know if you heard that Biden said last week that in he told uh, Putin that he'll have meetings with Russia with three or four other mm. uh, NATO members to talk about Russia's differences with NATO. Well, Lou, we know what Russia's difference is with NATO is they don't want it to exist. It exists to stop its expansion into Western Europe. To talk about how we're going to negotiate its mandate is, is just absolutely silly, and it's frightening. The states uh, on the Russian border who desperately need us to stand, uh, stand strong against what appears to be Russian preparation to invade at least parts of Ukraine. NATO now at least is saying that there will be quote-unquote grave consequences uh, if Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. That is completely unacceptable. It's uh, idiotic to hear these warnings when you've got, you've got a, a nuclear power with 200,000 of its troops the only purpose, in my opinion, of which would be to take advantage of an opportunity, exploit it, and invade Ukraine. We watched the same process with Crimea, and not a single, single power, Western power, uh, raised a finger, for that matter, no one else, and certainly in Europe, the most proximate uh, potential victims of Russian aggression. I, I, am, I, I am absolutely skeptical that there is any a likelihood that the United States, uh, Europe, uh, will outwit Vladimir Putin on the issue of Ukraine. What do you think? Well, you know, that's exactly right. When 
Russia invaded Ukraine during the Obama administration. There were all kinds of threats against Russia. Where is it now? Uh, it's now facing the same kind of threats. And I got to tell you, countries like Germany cannot afford to stop receiving Russian gas because they shut down their nuclear plants. They've shut down their coal plants. Winter's coming. Let's see what Germany's going to do when there's an invasion of eastern Ukraine. Are they really going to say no to that gas? I don't think so. Does NATO have the the combined forces uh, to actually uh, stand up to Putin? I, I mean, I if those tanks roll uh, from Russia into Ukraine, it's over. There is not time to have silly meetings, listen to another you know, General Assembly and National Security Council meeting at the United Nations. This will be over in the blink of an eye and not a single country, not a single defense alliance, uh, NATO, is prepared for it. Vladimir Putin is prepared. Why would he not? That becomes the question. I think that's right. But this touches on another issue. I do not want to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. I don't want American troops in Ukraine. We feel badly about what's going on in Ukraine, but we do not have strategic interest there. I'm an America first guy, Lou, and I know you are too. We need to handle this carefully, but not to say we will intervene militarily in a mm -hmm. country that we know is in Russia's sphere of influence. We need to pressure them not to invade it, but we, we should not be sending in American troops. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that uh, uh, point, troops. But at the same time, to have no one leading uh, you know, the leader of the free world is now for crying out loud, it's unbelievable as I even say this, is Joe Biden. Are, do we really expect, you You said he's senile, I think that he's just intellectually limited uh, and certainly has no inkling of what in the world our foreign policy should be or what our national interest is. I can't imagine him saying uh, to uh, to the NATO nations, you know, let's let's be sensible. Let's get organized and get around this. We will provide you and support you in every way possible. But where are your troops and what are you doing and what is the plan if those tanks roll? Gentlemen, ladies, uh, I, I, I just can't see that conversation happening because, first of all, they would probably laugh him off the phone. It's amazing. He has not been president in a year and his reputation credibility has been undermined to a level I don't think we've ever seen in an American president. And it's not just Afghanistan. Every time he gives a public speech, every time he appears with a foreign leader, he makes a fool of himself, Lou. He is undermining his credibility. And I mean, that's why we have yeah, he has G21 meetings. A lot of nations just don't show up because they have no interest in meeting with the president of the United States. And I just think that is astounding. Yeah, they, they don't need to be sharing in the embarrassment uh, that he is sure to uh, to uh, bring with him wherever he goes. Uh, so I so with that, I think that right now Europe is uh, is frankly a sitting duck uh, for for Vladimir Putin and uh, his military. And I, I I just can't imagine why he would move that many troops, that much equipment, heavy equipment into uh into position and not use it. I don't know. I also think he's a bit of a poker player. He wants to see what he can extort from the United States and Western Europe. And he's already doing that. He's already dividing, dividing NATO. And look, Biden has made statements to the Ukrainian government to negotiate with Russia that are not in the Ukrainian government's interest, that would essentially cede these areas of Eastern Ukraine that, that Russia has occupied, Russian for uh, pro-Russia force have occupied, that they basically would vote to break away. Biden doesn't understand what he's saying in these discussions with these foreign leaders. Yeah, I, it, perhaps he doesn't know that uh, that uh, that Eastern Ukraine uh, is not unlike Crimea, that is, Russian speakers, Russian culture, a Russo a population in point of fact, uh, that would not be entirely, uh, you know, against the idea of being... Uh, a uh, let's put it this way a province of of russia so uh, so where do we go from there uh, we've got uh, this man in the white house he's ours uh, what what happens to europe what happens to poland what happens to ukraine 
maybe it's pointless to hope for this, but I really wish that senior Democrats would pressure Biden to bring in some competent foreign policy advisors, get rid of Blinken, get rid of Sullivan, put people in place who would give him some sensible advice and stand up to him when he simply says things that make no sense. Because it's, you know, he's going to be president for three more years. And, and, and if he leaves early, my God, what would happen if Kamala Harris was there? I just think our influence is going to uh, fall and fall and fall under this president. And our enemies are watching. They see historic opportunities to do things in Taiwan right. with Iran with terrorist groups concerning Russia that they would never do in other circumstances because of Biden. Well, where are the uh, generals who were criticizing Donald Trump at every step? Where is the Pentagon? I, I mean, you're talking about a, a, a group. A, those generals are uh, a gaggle of louts uh, who seem to be more interested in politics and social issues than in, uh, in taking our military to the level that we are prepared for any uh, any threat uh, from any quarter. I, I, I feel no more confident of the, frankly, of the military leadership than I do the civilian leadership at 1600 Pennsylvania. That's why I, I talk about the foreign policy establishment. It's their Republican and Democratic in, administrations. It's what people want to be part of so they feel uh, credible and liked. And it's a real problem for this country but Donald Trump found out it was a real problem for him because people he thought he brought in who were legitimate foreign policy experts, you know, they're they're actually on the other side of the aisle. They're not going to support anything he does. So that's why we're not seeing any protests on what Biden is doing now. And they were happy to protest good policy by President Trump because of their 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 when left you say that ideology. They you're talking about the military leadership. I'm talking about the foreign policy establishment, the military well, no, leadership. No, no, no. I want to I want to focus I want to focus on the military here for a minute, okay. Fred, if we may. Sure. I, I I mean the defense secretary, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the staff right down the line, this these generals have have been abysmal in their military leadership. They have not succeeded in missions. They have not, uh, by the way, and I do give uh, great weight to the fact that they have had some terrible leadership uh, at, uh, at the White House. But that said, these generals have not made any sense whatsoever of the past 20 years. Uh, and they've come up with long war doctrines, which is exactly the opposite of what any, you know, it's, it's like saying, why not just say failure, uh, defeat, uh, surrender, uh, rather than long long, uh, the, the long doctrine. And suddenly under Biden, they're just as quiet as church mice. We need a culture change in the Pentagon. Uh, we know very well that these generals, their purpose in life is to get jobs with Harvard or the Ford Foundation when they retire. They want the New York Times to write nice things about them. They want to leak to important liberal newspapers. So they'll be, they'll be well regarded. Don't forget the part about working for corporate America and Wall Street so that they can put a few dollars exactly. in their pocket. Um, I'm afraid that's right. So let's let's turn now to you know the number one. Now it's taken years. It's taken Donald Trump being president of the United States. But finally, there is an understanding in this country at uh, in every, I think, in every part of our society that communist China is the number one threat against the United States. But it took Donald Trump pounding his fist on a lectern uh, for several years before that was, uh, well, it even began to be uh, comprehended by so many of our globalist elites. And yet now with Joe Biden in the White House, they are doing exactly what Xi Jinping tells them. And uh, that includes taking dominion over the South China Sea, it means that Taiwan is under constant threat, uh, and the United States doesn't have an obvious policy in which any American citizen could look over toward uh, the, the East uh, and say, in Washington, D.C., we know exactly what our leaders would do. They would defend Taiwan. These would be the responses. There is this great cloud of ambiguity, once again, uh, and denial in Washington, D.C. You know, the Chinese feared Donald Trump. They feared him because they knew he would take action. He wasn't going to hesitate. He put sanctions and tariffs on them. 
as, as often as he possibly could. You know, we put a thousand sanctions on Iran. I divert a little bit, but I mean, Trump was a man of action. There's no serious China policy for Joe Biden other than climate change. And the Chinese are laughing at us when we send uh, uh, climate czar John Kerry to talk about climate change instead of the, the persecution yeah. of the Uyghurs or Taiwan or Hong Kong. The Chinese know weakness and they, they know that this is yeah. a time that they can exploit it. Well, one, one area where foreign policy, and this has been under several presidents, has been strong. And that is in the seeming persecution of Julian Assange. Uh, it now uh, looks as though he will be coming back to the United States uh, under with some guarantees of uh, his treatment uh, negotiated, but they're not apparently very strong guarantees. Your thoughts about Julian Assange, why there has been this effort to crush this man? Well, Mike Pompeo described Julian Assange as a non-state hostile intelligence service and said that it's clear that Assange has ties to Russia and he's mm -hmm. condemned him for his vindictive leaking against the U.S. military, refusing to redact names and the things he's leaked. He's caused the deaths of many uh, American soldiers and he just leaks stuff. When a journalist gets classified information and that they decide to publish it, they first have to decide is the release of the information, is that more important than the damage it could do to national security or human life. Assange is not a journalist because he's never made the determination. And that's why I want to see him prosecuted. Okay, I, but what, what has been the point of the way in which the United States and our allies in every way, the United Kingdom, you know, it's just been a mess. Uh, and no one seems to be, to have the guts to unravel this mess and say, Julian Assange, you are charged with this, 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 and this, and the deaths of these agents, these Americans, and here are the facts, uh, to, and say it to the American people. Instead, it's been an operation that was more, uh, more akin to something that would be carried out by the Soviet Union in its heyday. Uh, it's authoritarian. It is, uh, it's despicable the way in which uh, he's been, uh, in my judgment, held, persecuted, and attacked. Now, let me say this, if it is proved that he did any of the things you just said, then we have a different situation. But there is a matter of due process here. He, this is the United States. We're not some two-bit, uh, well, we didn't used to be some two-bit uh, authoritarian state. No, I, I think you're right. I don't understand the way this man has, ha, has been accused and indicted and and, and held, it, it seems to me it's, it's, it has been a mess. Uh, I'm hoping that we're now coming to conclusion that there'll be some clear charges. He'll be tried in, in a, in a uh, open trial. He'll have a chance to defend himself and then we'll be done with it. But this has dragged out too long. And I don't think either Republican or Democratic administrations ha had any clear uh, strategy on how to deal with Assange. Yeah, you know, it, it, sometimes it doesn't take a strategy. It's not that uh, fancy a deal. Sometimes just doing the right thing, the American thing, is the way to operate. Uh, and all of that has been lost here. And I think it is, it is certainly a, a slur on uh, these administrations that have participated in it, uh, and our allies, so-called, uh, who have not been particularly helpful in getting to the, uh, to the truth of the matter. Uh, by the way, it's interesting that our, our brilliant uh, journalistic uh, class has not uh, been particularly uh, in intelligent either or ambitious in telling his story. Uh, it's a sad story for him, and I do believe for the country because of the way in which so many of our leaders have handled this. Uh, with respect to Mike Pompeo, you know, words are cheap. Doing the right thing is the requisite to be a leader of the, the CIA. Uh, or the State Department post that uh, he held and could have been uh, extremely helpful to the public's right to know. Instead, it was uh, quite the inverse. We have, uh, as you know, the policy here of uh, the last word, and you get it, uh, Fred, the last word on this uh, episode of the Great America Show. Well, I I'm really hoping that the Biden administration will realize it's time to walk away from these nuclear talks, talks with Iran and return to President Trump's successful maximum pressure strategy on Iran. 
it's the only way. I don't want a war with Iran, but I don't want talks that's going to lead to appeasement. And, and my hope is that the Biden administration will recognize this as soon as possible. Yeah. You know, what we have proved is that these leaders are not very good at war. Uh, and, the, and the shame of it is neither are those generals who are responsible for the, the long war uh, that uh, was carried out for two decades in Afghanistan. With that said, I appreciate, uh, as always, your, your thoughtful analysis and your insight. And uh, come back soon, Fred, if you would, please. Okay. Good to be here. Thanks, Lou. Fred Flights, a great American. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds.